0: listening to From the Inside Out, a podcast series from USAID Learning Lab. International development is a complex process, and we don't always get it right. But here at USAID Learning Lab, we believe that we all have a role in improving organizational effectiveness and ultimately achieving better development outcomes. Our goal for this series is to empower USAID staff and partners to change the way they work. So we're sharing research and practical tips on how you can collaborate, learn, and adapt to help USAID achieve better development outcomes. If change starts with people, then what does it take to build a collaborative learning-focused team? When development isn't a linear process and success depends on much more than a set of technical skills, what kinds of skills and qualities should you look for when hiring? In this episode, we will hear from three development practitioners with insight on this very question. And if you're wondering how to build a learning culture on your existing team, we've got you covered. Be sure to tune in to our next episode, which is on this very topic. I'm Amy Leo, communications specialist on the USA Learn contract, recording from Washington, D.C. with my co-hosts, Stacey and Ian.
1: Good morning. Good morning.
0: Stacey Young leads USAID's collaborating, learning, and adapting team. In fact, she's partly responsible for developing the concept of collaborating, learning, and adapting, which, going forward, we'll refer to as CLA. Stacey, can you share some of that origin story with us?
2: Yeah, thanks, Amy. I joined USAID in 2003, and I worked for seven or eight years in the Economic Growth Bureau piloting a knowledge management and learning effort there that uh, then grew out to other parts of the agency. Then around um, 2009, 2010, the agency was reinstating its policy function, including the country-level strategic planning function. And as part of that, I was invited to work with the Uganda Mission. They were piloting new guidance on strategic planning, and, and so I was able to work with the Uganda Mission to develop the CLA concept and pilot it there, and then um, bring that into PPL's efforts to to reinstate program cycle practices across the agency. And so I've been in PPL since 2011, leading the CLA effort there.
0: And PPL is USAID's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning, correct? That's right. Thanks. Also here in the studio with me is Ian Lathrop, Communications Manager on the USAID Learn contract. Ian, why do you believe we need to change the way we work?
1: Hi, Amy. I've only been working for about seven or eight years, and in that time, I have seen what happens when we have um, a negative work culture or one that is not conducive to collaborating, um, one that it can come across as toxic and siloed, kind of one that fosters a strange sense of competition, not, not, not in the healthy sense, but one where it's, uh, it's we have to outdo the other team at the sake of the shared goal. And so in my role here at LEARN, I've really um, taken to this idea of being intentional about creating a, a, a great work environment to get us all thinking about how we can be working best together to achieve the goal that we're trying to achieve.
0: Thanks Ian. Before we get to our conversation about building an adaptive team, I want to take a moment to do a quick DTR. For those of you uninitiated in millennial dating customs, DTR stands for define the relationship. So. Here goes. The contract that Ian and I are on, the USA Learn contract, provides technical assistance to Stacy's team, the CLA team, in USA's Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning.
2: That's right. Amy, I'd like to think of you guys as our extended team and definitely our force multipliers, but also a lot of the innovation that we do comes from you because you have really broad and deep expertise in a lot of aspects of knowledge and learning on your team of about 35 people.
0: So, we'll be speaking from our experience as USAID staff and partners, and also about our donor-partner relationship. USAID isn't the only donor organization using an adaptive approach in its programming. DFID, the UK's Department for International Development, is also working this way. In August 2016, Helen Derbyshire and Elberth Donovan co-authored a research paper entitled, Adaptive Programming and Practice, shared lessons from the DFID-funded LASER and Savvy programs. I recently spoke with Elbereth and Helen to hear about their lessons learned on building adaptive teams for these programs. First, here's Elbereth explaining why her climate reform
3: program required a non-traditional set of skills.
0: We couldn't
3: do this with, in inverted commas, traditional development practitioners. And what do I mean by that? Um, often when we look at staffing a reform program, donors put a lot of emphasis on people having 15 or 20 years experience, a master's degree, a PhD. Uh, you know, we get people that economists, we get people that worked in a number of countries for a number of years, they want Prince qualifications, etc., etc. So donors can stipulate quite um, a lot what we need to field in our team. And that's not necessarily what we needed to actually work in an adaptive way. Um, what we realized was that sometimes or often, soft skills were more important than technical skills. So, firstly, you need people that's really comfortable with a lot of uncertainty. You know, I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what you're going to do when you get off the plane uh, in Kigali or, or in Nairobi. Um, I'm simply going to say to you, go and speak to a wide range of stakeholders, find out what they want help with, and, you know, do some analysis on where the problems lie, where the political will is, and then start to work with them. So it was really about people being able to ask questions and to find in and to build trust rather than it was about having an expert who was able to go in and give answers and give solutions. Um, they equally had to be able to actually facilitate discussions and facilitate uh, local stakeholders to come up with their own solutions and to help them find a way forward rather than going in and telling them what it is we wanted them to do. So. Right. Those staff were
2: really serving as facilitators, as Elberth said, and they expected to ask lots of questions rather than coming in and providing the answers. So this is the approach that is really at the heart of USAID's collaborating, learning, and adapting process. I think one of the things that comes out um, really strongly that she didn't name as such is the importance of humility. And it can be funny in a government context to say that you want to hire for humility It's not really um, one of the core competencies that gets mentioned very often, but I think it's absolutely essential to development uh, if we're to get out of this mode of going in and providing answers to questions that nobody's asking and instead really see ourselves as facilitating a process that's owned by somebody else because it affects their lives.
1: That's right. I really picked up on that point that she mentioned about being a facilitator and not just facilitating a group conversation, but facilitating parties involved in this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and also because that facilitative approach is something that is so useful to bring to systemic constraints. And, and the systemic constraints are really important to understand and um, address, you need somebody who's good at systems thinking. And so again, that's not sort of the traditional skill set of a development worker. Although I, I do think that more and more um, practitioner organizations and donors are embracing systems approaches and understanding the importance of
0: systems thinking. Helen Darbyshire's project was also set up to be adaptive. Here's her description of it.
4: The SABI program is a DFID-funded social accountability program. Um, in Nigeria. It started in 2008. It came to an end in 2016. Um, SAVI is a social accountability program in the sense that it's, it's working to support citizens, civil society groups, media organizations, and politicians to influence their state governments and to hold them to account. And it worked in 10 states in Nigeria.
0: And here's Helen's description of how the project was structured.
4: Right from the start, we wanted the program to try to facilitate locally driven processes of change which had the potential to take on a life of their own after the program, so to kind of catalyze and support working relationships amongst local actors that weren't driven by funding. So because of that, rather than give grants, we worked through in-house state teams. So each of the, in each of the state teams where we worked, we had Um, We recruited our own state teams whose role was to play a behind-the-scenes facilitation role, brokering working relationships between citizens, civil society organizations, media organizations, state-level politicians, and governments to mentor the, the various players involved in those relationships, and to support them with funding on a diminishing basis, but in such a way that their activities were not driven by funding, but supported by funding to get them going.
0: Stacy, how does this resonate with you and your experience at USAID?
2: That's such an important point about funding. Um, I, I think that uh, we hear this, that funding can constrain adaptability, because funding implies we know what we're doing and we know how much it's going to cost and then there's an uh, an imperative to use the funding in order to be able to garner more funding and so then the you know it's the tail wagging the dog isn't it it's the funding driving the intervention rather than vice versa so yeah definitely with respect to uh, adaptive management she's also talking about locally driven development and So much of what she's saying, including the funding piece, but the other pieces as well align with what we heard, for instance, from the many voices represented in Time to Listen, which was um, that about five years ago now that um, listening project that involved listening to people on the receiving end of foreign assistance. That's the subtitle of the book, Time to Listen, which incidentally is my favorite book about development. Um, And one of the things that people on the receiving end of development assistance say is there's too much funding uh, and that it drives implementation instead of um, being able to figure out what works, figure out what's needed, and then from there build some sort of intervention that is inclusive and collaborative and definitely locally led.
1: It brings me back to the, the word facilitate which is really what development is about, particularly if you're here in Washington. But if you are in in the position of an implementing partner, your goal is to bring these people together to lead them to develop the solutions that serve their needs um, best, right?
2: Yeah, I I think, I think that's important. When we talk about self-reliance, if we're talking about countries building their ability to look the way we tell them that they should look right that's not really a recipe for success for anybody so yeah I think I think that that's really right Ian that um there's that whole piece about listening and then also just seeing ourselves as bringing one piece of the puzzle that is the solution and we don't even always know what that piece is right um, sometimes it's convening, sometimes it's expertise, sometimes it's funding, sometimes it's a combination of all three, um, but we don't know. And we, we don't know until we figure that out together with the people that right. we're trying to support. Right.
1: And being comfortable with a lot of uncertainty. Elbereth mentioned uncertainty of getting on the ground and having to figure things out. And using your position as a development professional, either working for a donor or working for the implementer, to bring your resources, your social connection resources, your monetary resources, your knowledge of a specific sector resources, to pull those together, to bring the team and say, we're moving where the direction of the goal is going and we're not motivated by our own egos or our own agendas or our own priorities.
0: Helen also told me that they had a major pivot in their program, and here's her description of what happened.
4: We found over the course of time that the kind of vision that the central core team had for the program was not really being fulfilled in the kinds of people we were recruiting. We we found we were recruiting more activists than facilitators, people who wanted to lead from the front as opposed to facilitate from behind the scenes, and that really didn't fit with the kind of work that we were doing. Plus, the pressure of the results framework meant that there was, in a sense, increasingly a a pressure to deliver results kind of at all costs without really looking at the sort of attitudes and behaviors that made those results meaningful and sustainable on the ground. So by the time we reached about three or four years into the program, we realized that we needed to do something about this. We needed to sort of reinstate. Uh, a focus on on kind of core values, attitudes and behaviour and see how that could help us to, to build more effective teams. So we brought in a change management consultant and he was really invaluable in helping us to kind of understand that we needed to re engage with our core values. So, in the in the first instance, at the very beginning of the programme, we had devised a set of core values, but that was just this central core team, and then they'd just been taken for granted. They didn't they didn't um, uh, influence our recruitment, or our appraisal processes, or our team building. But with the help of the, of the external management consultant, we revisited our core values in a highly participatory way, and also, and this was really important, to agree a set of core behaviors and attitudes which were about living those values
1: it's interesting that she um at the end there mentioned that they use it for recruitment and uh performance evaluation because as you know amy on Learn on our team we when we began we were very intentional about creating a set of values that are important to us and should inform our work and we've um, we spent a lot of time working through a process to develop those and they've barely become um foundational, I would say, in our culture, on our team, and we we you know we have posters of them in a in a um, what's the word for non tacky
4: <laughs> Yeah,
1: but not like those motivational posters, but we have them displayed so that they're always front of mind for folks and we have a um, an informal working group that meets to talk about our values and how. We're holding ourselves to them to make sure that the team is headed in the right direction in terms of the culture. Um, and then we hope, the hope with them is that when we are working with other people, colleagues outside of our core team, we're we're sh- emanating, presenting, sharing, communicating those values with them so that it kind of snowballs. Mm-hmm. It's great to see that somebody else um, had success in doing something just like that.
0: And we're also evaluated based on those values. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Twice a year
1: is great.
2: I like the way that she's connecting a lot of the different things that go into an an approach to development that puts the stakeholder communities in the lead. She's connecting that approach to values and also behaviors, the kinds of behaviors that we need to enact in order to work in that mode that makes that possible. I really like that she talked about um, first of all, uh, convening staff to identify what the, what the values are and the behaviors, um, and that they also brought in a change management consultant, because I think that a lot of times we can develop a vision of how we want to work differently, but we can't figure out how to get from where we are to that new place. And breaking down that change process is really essential, and then figuring out, um these are the behaviors what do they look like in practice this is our current mode and and this is where we want to go how do we get there step by step those kinds of change processes are essential to getting to a different approach that that does enable our intended beneficiaries uh, to lead their own development processes and i think that um and when we get into those kinds of conversations, we mm-hmm. find out that it's harder than it looks. And uh, we don't always attach the same behaviors to some of those values. In the USAID context, on the CLA team and in several missions, we see the importance of developing a charter for the team that articulates what those desired behaviors are, but then also using that charter to help us dig into what we actually mean when we identify, for instance, I think she was talking about valuing different work styles or um, sensitivity mm-hmm. s- sensitivity to other perspectives and so on. What that actually looks like as we live that behavior in our development work is something that we need to work out. It's mm-hmm. not something that is, that is uh, self-evident even as we as we identify that as a value.
0: For me, it was really inspiring and encouraging to hear how they noticed the dynamic on the team wasn't serving them and that they were really intentional about bringing in someone that could help and then putting a lot of energy into to changing. And actually just the idea that they had the optimism that dynamic on a team that was dysfunctional could change is really refreshing to me having been on dysfunctional teams and the status quo was, oh, well, this is just how we are. This is how these people operate, and it's just too bad. We can't change. So I just found that really refreshing and encouraging.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree. I also like that she foregrounded the uh, pressure around development results as one of the drivers mm. of the behaviors that weren't particularly functional for the team because we see that all the time. And, again, this brings us back to – the things that are uh, specific to our work in international development, the concern among beneficiary communities about um, not offending the donor, about not turning off the resource flow, the concern among development workers ourselves about results and what counts as results, and then the kinds of ways that those things can skew the behaviors away from the behaviors that we need in order to shift the power dynamic between development workers and the people we're trying to help.
0: So with this renewed focus on values, listen to Helen's description of how their recruitment strategy changed.
4: So once we agreed these core values and associated behaviors, then we completely changed our approach to uh, the way we did interviews. So we were still recruiting on the basis of, of um, terms of reference, et cetera, and we still looked at people's CVs, and we shortlisted. We had, we had shortlisting processes when we would shortlist on the basis of making sure we had people who had the technical skills that we required, and we also uh, assessed that through, um, through uh, references. But actually, in the interview itself, we focused entirely on our values. So we kind of knew that we'd only brought to interview people who had the kind of basic set of technical skills that we needed. But then we focused on the values in the interview. And so that um, meant that we asked questions, which were about ways in which they could demonstrate those uh, behaviors associated with the values. And we asked that not in theory, not to give imaginary situations, but to ask if they could give us examples of how they had, for example, demonstrated sensitivity to colleagues who had, you know, different culture and religion to them, or how they had gone out of their way to include people in in understanding an approach that they wanted to promote.
1: I was reading an article in in Harvard Business Review, I think last month, talking about how you have to be careful when you hire for culture fit on teams, because that, that often means that people are all the same. So it's like we're a team of extroverts and we're only looking for more extroverts when you may need an introvert to focus on getting some of those things done that you need to get done. But asking these, these plain questions of like how have you, how have you demonstrated uh, gender sensitivity or how have you navigated s- certain situations with practical answers um, shows that the people understand what you're talking about um, and can do the job that you need them to do and are technically competent with, with all of the, the litany of things required to work in, in development. Um, and that's I think that's a, a very easy way to get toward that. And then you're also living your values yourself by having a hiring process that is, that is set up that way.
2: Yeah, I found that really interesting, too, that they were asking for people to d- describe things that they had actually done to demonstrate those values. That seems really promising and something that I would like to try the next time I recruit somebody. I have the k- same observation that you have, Ian, about you know potential danger of groupthink and um, needing to keep in mind what values and behaviors look like not only at the individual level, but across the team. Mm-hmm. and. Maybe it's less values and behaviours than it is differences in in style or whatever, but there I I do think that there is a there's a combination of homogeneity and heterogeneity that you want on a team so that you can have people playing that critical function for each other as well as reinforcing the kinds of behaviours that are conducive to the approach to development that we're talking about. It, it sounds as though they've navigated that well, but it is something that I would be on the lookout for. And another thing is that she, she didn't emphasize it much in what she was saying, but she led with saying that they initially screened for development experience. And I just want to emphasize that because I think that alongside the shared values, that's really essential. You can have somebody who enacts the kinds of sensitivities that you're looking for, but without the development experience, they will have a hard time connecting with people you're trying to work with in the field. And so putting those together, I think, is a really promising aspect of the kind of process that she's describing.
0: It actually relates to something I heard during my interview with Emma Proud from Mercy Corps. Mercy Corps has done a lot of work around adaptive management, even making Emma Proud their director of organizational agility. Here's what Emma had to say about incentivizing learning behaviors across the whole organization.
5: It all comes back to people, and people really do drive the agile organization. So if we're saying it's about mindset and culture and learning, what we found is that managers and leaders, but particularly direct managers, really do create the enabling environment internally for that to evolve and happen. They signal it, they role model it, um, so we identified managers as being a really key leverage point in the system. What we found was that there was a risk that it becomes like a cult of personality, where we say that one particular leader has created this like super team who can be adaptive and other people don't. But coming almost from the perspective of Carol Dweck's growth mindset, right? So obviously, growth mindset is where you enjoy learning and realize that you learn more when you're at the edges of what you're capable of. But she doesn't say that it's given. It's not like you've either got it or you haven't. It's something that you can learn. So trying to think, okay, if that's the case, we don't want to write off all of the managers that we've got in our 5,000-person organization. We want to try and work out how we can cultivate and nurture those particular kind of mindsets and start introducing like nudges to help managers do more.
0: I wanted to play that clip for you because... This is Mercy Corps' approach to preventing that sort of cult of personality around adaptive leaders. They are really working to incentivize these behaviors at all levels, not just in managers, but also that supervisees expect these behaviors from their managers and that everyone that's part of a team is expected to reflect these behaviors to each other.
1: I have a lot of thoughts about what she said. I also kind of want to work with her. She sounds awesome. (laughs) She mentioned that erosion of trust with managers, especially if you're in the middle, if you are managed by someone and you are managing others, of you fall into the trap of going over a to-do list with folks. Did you do this? Did you send that email? Did you you know, have your meeting? Um, and I have been on teams where that is often the case, where you have a, a check-in and you just go through the same list that you've gone through over and over. Um, But it's really helpful when you think about it of this is our team's shared vision and objective. This is what needs to be done, but how you do it is up to you. Go, if you have a different work style, if you have a different thought on how we should, you know, just go do it. We'll check in on how it's going to get there, but just as long as we're on the same page of why we're doing what we're doing and where we're trying to go, then you can empower staff, teams to be creative, be Entrepreneurial or whatever to get there, and then they feel that they own a piece of of the team's work. Mm-hmm. I also think it's it's um, in this in development itself. We're kind of all motivated by the same goal, and you could you could make it pie in the sky of making the world a better place or improving the health of mothers in this region or whatever that goal is. That's the, your motivating factor versus something like wall street or something where you're like motivated by a ton of money or prestige or whatever it is you know it's a little bit different here where that's what we're motivated and then we're trying to do the best we can here with in our work and then you're more collaborative that way um i don't think anybody is is working here to be the like biggest celebrity of development for that reason they may be a celebrity in development (laughs) but that's i don't i do not say that like i want to be the most famous person in development they're here because of a of a a uh, deeper purpose,
0: yeah, a goal that it's not for them, it's for others exactly
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think that's a really important point because people in development are by and large really strongly mission driven, mm-hmm. and that approach to management that uh is all about checking up on whether you did x and y really undermines that it it um essentially second guesses people's motives, and I think um th- it it's no accident that the kind of leadership that we see that works well um and i love that Emma's title is director of organizational agility i just love that there's that title out there um but uh, but her position and and the other people we've heard from uh and other people we know in this space the type of leadership that they bring to the teams that they work with is very similar to what we're saying It should be our stance vis-a-vis the communities that we're trying to support, right? It, it's facilitative. Um, it's not about checking up on people because of some underlying assumption that without that they will somehow slack off, but instead really building on that um, strong sense of purpose that we all have. and. Um, Helping to remove the obstacles between people and what we're all trying to collectively accomplish. And that, I think, is is really essential to uh, the kinds of approaches that we're talking about. And I'm um, I'm also reminded of the work that we're doing in the evidence base for CLA work stream that, um, looks at evidence from a lot of sectors. She talked about behavioural economics, for instance, and, um, evidence that that supports this notion that people are more effective if they are more empowered mm-hmm. and that building on people's sense of purpose and, and mission and um, supporting their engagement with their work and with their colleagues is really essential to their effectiveness.
1: I think that plays on what I think it was Helen was saying, when you, when you have trust or when you have personal connections with folks on your team, when you establish a strong personal relationship, you're, you're going to feel more empowered, both of you.
2: Yeah, I think that that word respect it's often really loaded, but I think that's at the heart of what we're talking about. Mm. Really respecting that people are doing their best, that they have good intentions, that they're committed to um achieving results and supporting them in that instead of the the kinds of um management styles or um performance structures or whatever that can sometimes send a quite different message and again the resonance between that and how we approach development generally um are we listening to and respecting the communities that we're working with are we supporting them in um articulating their visions and achieving those visions um does everybody have a voice are we are we supporting that so i thought those connections were really really important in what they were saying I also appreciated the connections between, again, uh, behaviors at an individual level and the kinds of management and team structures and incentives that surround those individual behaviors and can move them in one direction or or another. I think that's, that's a really important connection to make, and I liked what they were saying about that.
0: So next time you're hiring, look beyond technical skills search for candidates with a history of asking questions and facilitating rather than leading development. Stacy's final thoughts were a good teaser for the topic of our next episode, which is creating a learning culture. Listen for some tips on fostering the enabling conditions for adaptive management. All of the research in this episode comes from our area of work on the evidence base for collaborating, learning, and adapting. To learn more, visit usalearninglab.org slash eb, the number four, C-L-A. Thank you to Elberth Donovan, Helen Derbyshire, and Emma Proud for their contributions to this discussion. For more information about how USAID is collaborating, learning, and adapting for better development results, visit USAIDlearninglab.org.
1: The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of the USAID Learn contract implemented by Texas Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in the Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Poddington Bear.